O Lord our God, you are the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. We pray that your truth would inform our minds, that it would stir our hearts, and that we by faith would take hold of and rest upon and see with clarity the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, apart from whom and apart from whose saving work we have no basis to stand in your presence. Lord God, we thank you for the glorious doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that we would cling to them, that we would love them, believe them, obey them, and that we would vigorously defend them against those who would sow seeds of confusion and error in the midst of your field, your garden, your church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this may in fact be our final lecture in the Federal Vision series. Hopefully we can get through our material in an efficient manner Although our subject matter as we conclude our study is uh, larger than life and so significant that uh, it may be a bit ambitious to think we can get through it all in one lecture. Uh, we've considered quite a bit over the last 20-some lectures, and there's, uh, there are a number of things that I had hoped to address in the series that I didn't get around to addressing uh, various aspects of the federal vision and teachings of some of its adherents and proponents. Perhaps in some other venue we'll be able to address those things, but it, it, at this point it pr probably will not be in this lecture series. So we're coming down to the end, and we're going to consider Doug Wilson, hero, heretic, or huckster. And there are a lot of ways we could have concluded this series, but I think the fact is that there's one person who's been involved in the federal vision that looms larger than all the rest in terms of his relevance to the church today, uh, Doug Wilson. It's inescapable. This is an individual, this is a person that uh, we need to take stock of. We need to understand who he is. We need to be able to understand how to view him. And that's why we're going to conclude with this topic. Doug Wilson, hero, heretic, or huckster. Now, for many professing Christians, Doug Wilson ought to be celebrated as a hero. Uh, he's a prolific Christian author. I'm not sure how many books he's written, but it's many, probably dozens of books. He is prolific as well as a blogger on the Blog and May Blog website, dougwills.com, D-O-U-G-W-I-L-S.com. And his blog has uh, pivoted over to YouTube. He does a number of videos, numerous videos, commenting on theology, commenting on society and politics and book reviews and things like this. So he's all over the media within the Christian world, especially among Calvinists. And people look to him as a, as a major influence in their lives as they're seeking to make uh, some type of an interpretation of what's happening in the world of doctrine and life, they look to him and they celebrate him as a hero. They look at all of his accomplishments as an author and so on and so forth. Um, by the way, Doug Wilson is a pastor at Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho, so he's a pastor, uh, or we'll, we'll get to the question of whether he's actually a pastor, but he serves as a pastor in that church and uh, writes all these books, publishes his blog, does all the YouTube stuff. Uh, he's also a pioneer of classical Christian education. So at a time when many Christians are moving away from public education to homeschooling or Christian schooling, at a time when classical Christian education is very, very popular, increasingly so among homeschoolers and Christian schools, Doug Wilson has been at the, at the center of that, uh, not just jumping on the bandwagon, but he was ahead of the curve in many respects in a lot of his uh, curriculums and resources. 
that he publishes. Uh, in addition, uh, he founded and established a number of institutions. He founded a school, a college, a seminary, a church, a publishing house, Canon Press, and a denomination, originally the Confederation of Reformed Evangelical Churches, but now the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches. So they, I don't know, it doesn't look like they got rid of the Confederates, but at least they took that out of their name. But he, he's, he's been highly influential, and again, he's been successful in building and establishing these various institutions. And so for many, he's viewed as a great example of advancing the kingdom, and certainly he's worked hard, and the things he's sought to do, he's done uh, mightily. And so many people look at him as a hero. Also, he's an exceptional communicator on matters where Christian leaders are often silent. Applying God's word to society, to the family, to various aspects of church and social life, to politics, to ethical questions where the rubber hits the road and a lot of Christian leaders and Christian denominations are either afraid to speak or they don't have anything to speak, Doug Wilson speaks, for better or worse. But he's addressing these things and so he's gained a large following of people because there's such an absence and a vacuum of biblical material on these issues He's addressing them, and if there are major developments in the world or in our country, uh, within a short time, you're going to see a Doug Wilson video on YouTube addressing it, reviewing books and, and dealing with major ideological trends and developments. This, this is the guy for many people that they're looking to as their hero, as, as their uh, Rosetta Stone to interpret what's happening around them. Uh, also, he has been a consistent opponent of atheism secular humanism, feminism, wokeism, abstractionism, which uh, is really where Christianity is all internal. It's all either in the head, intellectually, or in the heart in, in terms of an unhealthy sort of pietism, but it's not being applied concretely to every aspect of life. He's, he's opposed that as well, and various other toxic isms. So because of this, people look at the alternatives. They say, well, we're in an atheistic, secular, humanistic, feministic, woke culture, and the church is abstractionist, and here's Doug Wilson uh, riding forth on the mighty steed, ready to contend for the faith. Doug Wilson is a fearless Christian apologist, and uh, if you go on YouTube, I'm not recommending that you watch his videos, but uh, there is a video where he goes to Bloomington, Indiana, and debates uh, a number, of, or he, he answers questions and gives a presentation uh, on homosexuality, I think it is, at Indiana University, and he's essentially debating during the Q&A session with various students, and he's fearless, and he's very gracious to them, and so there are things you, you, you have to understand, we're going to get to these other aspects of Doug Wilson, but do not underestimate the fact that he does certain things very well, and he's not always, you know, a big chauvinistic ogre or something. He's very gracious to those uh, pagan college students in the way he deals with them, the way he speaks to them. Uh, he is a fearless defender of Christians against cancel culture, virtue signaling, and various other tendencies in our society and in the church. He's a father figure to a rising generation of fatherless reformed men. So more and more people, and I think this is a beautiful trend in our day, that under the surface, under the radar, God is doing a mighty work. We see it in our own church. We see it all over. Uh, God is converting many of our young people out of secular humanism, converting people to the gospel, converting people to the doctrines of grace. More and more people are leaving big mega churches and coming to more faithful, more biblical churches that preach the doctrines of Calvinism, whether they be Reformed Baptist or Presbyterian. And yet, many of them coming out of our culture do not have that father figure in their lives. They don't come from a solid Christian family or background. And so they look to Doug Wilson 
for better or worse, but he's made himself available to be that guy, and therefore he's filling that massive vacuum for these uh, reformed men, in quotes. You know, reformed young adult males who are needing to become more and more uh, of a man. He's doing that, and so he's their hero for many of these people. Also, he's a massively popular Christian influencer who professes agreement with the Westminster Standards. And so you have more and more interest in the Westminster Confession and catechisms among these new Calvinists and newly Reformed people. And here comes Doug Wilson saying, uh, as you can see in one of our quotations here, footnote 13, I was, am, and will remain a Westminster Puritan. We're going to evaluate that claim. But he claims to be a Westminster Puritan in a day when Westminster and Puritanism are on the rise among the new Calvinists. And so they say, well, I want to know what being a Westminster Puritan is. I'm going to go to Doug Wilson. He's my hero. And finally, even for those who are leery of the federal vision, it is the case that among the advocates of the federal vision, Doug Wilson is definitely the least heretical. Okay, He's the least heretical of all the federal vision advocates. And by saying that, I'm not at this point answering the question of whether he's a heretic, but you understand the point. There are some flaming heretics in the federal vision camp. Doug Wilson is not one of those. And we'll see, I believe, the significance of that fact and how it actually makes him more dangerous. But you won't find him saying the kind of unqualified heretical things that you'll hear from some of these other federal vision guys. Uh, there's always a worm on the hook. In this case, uh, there's a big, fat, juicy worm on the hook. And Doug Wilson is attractive. There's a lot about him that inspires confidence and admiration. And so we should expect that when Satan is seeking to deceive the church, he's going to raise people up that others want to follow. So that's, you know, the point here is not to say, hey, Doug Wilson's the greatest guy ever. But until you realize why people think he's the greatest guy ever, you're never going to understand the danger of Doug Wilson. So for many professing Christians, he ought to be celebrated as a hero. Secondly, in the minds of many others, Doug Wilson is nothing short of a heretic. And we're using the term heretic there in the worst sense of the term, in, in the most powerful sense of the term as someone who believes and or promotes soul-damning doctrine. Uh, for some, Doug Wilson is a capital H heretic. In fact, uh, for others, all caps. Heresy, heretic. Damnable heresy. This is what he's believing and teaching. And there are a number of reasons that one might come to that conclusion. First, he's an ecclesiastical lone ranger. He is admittedly self-ordained. So there was a church that he was involved in, speaking of, the, of an independent church in the loosest sense, but he was involved in the church. They lacked leadership. They lacked a pastor. I think the guy who was preaching for them left. And so Wilson and some others basically said, you know, if no one objects by such and such a point, we will become the elders of the church. And he was asked to lead and preach, and, and it developed gradually, but he, he, he was not ordained in a regular, ordinary manner. Now you say, well, but John Knox, what about John Knox? Uh, you know, he, he wasn't ordained after the ordinary manner. Well, John Knox was living, living in a much different time and place. Doug Wilson's living in an era where there are lots of true faithful churches that could have taken him under the wing and trained him and put him through seminary and worked through the outward call of the ministry and ordained him, but uh, he chose not to go in that direction. And he'll often joke and say, well, it was the 70s, everything was crazy, but there were a lot of true churches ordaining people in the 70s, believe it or not. So um, Doug Wilson chose not to go through that path. Uh, he's self-ordained. And uh, at one point, he orchestrated a church coup he came to some differing opinions than the church that he was now in leadership over that had originally been planted by an evangelical free church. 
Wilson came to some new opinions and new theological perspectives, and he explained this to the leadership. The elders of the church rejected what Wilson was saying, but when it came to a congregational meeting, most of the people agreed with Wilson, so the congregation trumped the eldership, and some elders resigned, and Wilson basically now was in, in the driver's seat. Uh, also, he started his own denomination, the Confederation, which is now the Communion of the Reformed Evangelical Churches, and he's the one who authored their Reformed Evangelical Confession of Faith. Now, granted, he's cutting and pasting aspects of other documents, the Westminster Standards and so forth, but if you look at his White Horse Inn interview from 2004, I think it was, you can go back in the handouts from previous lectures, but uh, he, he explains all of this. He, he did author that confession. He put it together, and he was the one spearheading the formation of this new denomination. So at no point did his so-called ordination uh, have the benefit of review by an established true branch of the visible church. They started their own. And of course, that starts us off on the wrong foot. As we're looking at Doug Wilson, you can see that this does not... This does not sound good. Jeremiah 23, verse 32 warns against prophets who uh, go out and preach, but they're not sent by God in the way that God has appointed. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 30, um, It says, also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. So we need to be careful of religious leaders who are a one-man show and who trump their elders and who uh, are able to manipulate things so that they are in the driver's seat of their church, of their denomination. People speak of the CREC as Doug Wilson's denomination, and I get it, sometimes we can speak in that way, and we know what we mean, but in this case, it's Doug Wilson's denomination. I mean, people, most people are far more uh, familiar with Doug Wilson than, than, than the CREC, and he's, he has a disproportionate influence, although at one point I think they did rebuke him for using foul language, but in any event, he's a lone ranger. Secondly, the bad fruit that you can see in his life. Um, so not only do we question whether he's actually a preacher who was sent, Romans 10, but we also could question whether he's not, in fact, a false teacher or a false prophet, according to the standard that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 7, where he speaks of the false prophets, and he says, by their fruits you will know them. And if you do any bit of research on Doug Wilson on the internet, you will find reputable sources which address a number of uh, sex scandals in his congregation that appear to have been greatly mishandled and high levels of uh, lack of discernment and misjudgment on the part of Wilson involving some pedophilia cases. This is uh, a, a black mark, at least to some extent upon his record. Again, you can look that up for yourself. These are allegations and they seem to have some measure of truth to them about how he mishandled these sex scandals. Also, his lewdness toward women. At one point, early on in his ministry, he and the boys, you know, it's, it's with Wilson, it always seems like the church is a good old boys club. They have the beer of the month. Well, Wilson and some of the good old boys uh, got a hold of the letterhead for the University of Idaho, and they made a... a counterfeit letter announcing that there would be a conference where these feminist professors would be speaking publicly, and, and I'm not even going to say uh, exactly the way it spoke of it, but essentially that they would not be properly clothed. And um, he, he's, he speaks lewdly about women all the time, frequently. This is a repeat problem. Uh, he spoke of women using a four-letter word that also I won't mention, on his blog, and I think that's when the CREC slapped him on the wrist. But there's a consistent problem here. You go to his website for Canon Press, and they say something like, we have a sense of humor that sometimes gets us into trouble. We like it that way. So he almost glories in this shame 
He's been guilty of plagiarism in ways that are just obvious. You can go online and you can look at, on the one side of the page, they'll show what he and Steve Wilkins wrote in their book on slavery. And then you can see another book that was published in, in previous generations on, slave, on Southern slavery. And it's clear plagiarism to the point where Wilkins has basically admitted it. And Wilson just says, well, it was bad editing. But if you look at it, there's no question that his integrity is, is highly dubious if, if he's the author here because it's plagiarism. Plain and simple. Uh, his pride, his great swelling words, just the whole approach and way in which he addresses issues is proud. His impenitence on many of these issues, refusing to repent. And we've seen in our lecture series his mindset where he's anti piety, characterizing it as a sort of bad form of pietism and anti revival. So there's bad fruit, also serious errors. He holds to a form of presumptive regeneration. You can see that going back to lecture 12, Doug Wilson on infant baptism. He holds to a presumptive form of regeneration that's conditioned upon the faithfulness of parents. So if you're faithful to raise your children, it's guaranteed your children, all of them, will be regenerate. You can go back and look at that. We cited all the sources. Also, he holds to pedo communion. We dealt with this in lectures 13 through 16. And Doug Wilson rejects the biblical confessional view of the Lord's table and brings little infants, little children to the table before they make a credible profession of faith in Christ. Huge problem. Very serious error to the point where God brings judgment when, when these things are not honored from His Word. Also, he holds to monocovenantalism, he denies the covenant of works. We dealt with this in lectures 17 and 18. And when you deny the covenant of works, you're denying the fundamental bedrock of our doctrine of justification by faith alone. And at least you're, you're destabilizing the basis and setting the stage for justification by faith plus works. So these are serious errors. I don't think we'd say these are Heresies, I guess Pado communion could be maybe a practical heresy in some kind of way, but these are not damnable heresies, but they're very serious errors. And that should be taken into account. Also, uh, with Wilson, you constantly get ambiguity and double talk on fundamental doctrinal issues. So on justification, footnote three, you can read that for yourself. I'll read a little por portion of it. But he'll often speak in orthodox terms concerning justification. Listen to this, quote, We are justified for Christ's sake only. God does not justify us for anything done by us, and far more important for anything done in us, even by Him. Nor does God justify us because of our faith. Rather, He justifies us because of Christ's obedience and work, and this is appropriated by us, by faith, Understanding these propositions in the gut is a matter of life and death, heaven and hell. This is what justification means. End quote. That's from Reformed is Not Enough, page 47, back in 2003. But as his Federal Vision buddies more and more departed from that, you can see Wilson now becoming more and more ambiguous in his doctrine of justification. So, for instance... Um, midway through uh, the second quotation there in, in uh, footnote four. Quote, regeneration is a change of heart from an unrighteous heart that hates God to a righteous but still imperfect heart that loves Him, repents of sin, and believes in Him. At the end of the day, this means infused righteousness as the instrument of imputed righteousness. End quote. Uh, he goes on. Quote, and because justification by faith alone is true, it is possible for someone with an orthodox theology on the subject to be actually looking at his correct theology instead of to Christ alone, and so he is lost. Uh, sorry, I think I, I messed up that quotation. Let me try that again. Quote, because justification by faith alone is true, it is possible for someone who is screwed up on justification in his theology to be actually saved. 
and because justification by faith alone is true, it is possible for someone with an orthodox theology uh, to not be saved. You can see that. So he hedges it. In, the, in footnote 3, he's saying, belief in justification by faith alone is a sine qua non of a genuine saint of God, in the additional quotation there. You have to believe this. He defines it in terms of the obedience of Christ, but then he hedges. He hedges. Once his buddies deny justification by faith alone, he pulls back with ambiguity in saying you can hold a, a wrong view. You can believe in justification, for instance, by faith plus works, but you could still be saved because you're not saved by your theology. We've dealt with that error before, but you see the, the double talk. Also on imputation, footnote 5, this is from the Joint Federal Vision Statement of 2007, which I'm sure Wilson probably had some hand in composing, but certainly he, he affirms it. Quote, We affirm Christ is all in all for us, and that his perfect sinless life, his suffering on the cross, and his glorious resurrection are all credited to us. Christ is our full obedience. End quote. Boy, that sounds really good. But then, ambiguity and double talk. Footnote 6. Later in that statement, quote, we deny that faithfulness to the gospel message requires any particular doctrinal formulation of the imputation of the active obedience of Christ. What matters is that we confess that our salvation is all of Christ and not from us, end quote. Now, by the way, if you compare that with what he said in the first quotation under footnote three, where he said that God does not justify us for anything done by us and far more important for anything done in us, even by Him. Sometimes He's saying, even if God or Christ is the one who does it in you, it's still off limits. But now He's saying, well, as long as you ascribe it to God or Christ, maybe we can be ambiguous about the particular mechanism of you receiving that righteousness, namely concerning imputation. Now, what I want you to see here in terms of the double talk, is that in footnote 5, we're told that Christ's sin, uh, perfectly sinless life is credited to us as our full obedience. Okay, His perfectly sinless life is credited to us as our full obedience. But then in footnote 6, it says, well, it's not necessarily meaning that his active obedience is imputed to us. Well, his sinless life is his active obedience. Okay? To accredit is to impute. So th this, this is very, very troubling and yet so typical for the federal visionists and for Doug Wilson. On the one hand, his sinless life is accredited to us. On the other hand, we're not necessarily saying that his active obedience is imputed to us. It, it's, this is characteristic of heretics throughout history. Double talk and ambiguity on fundamental doctr doctrinal issues. Uh, also, on baptism, you can see in footnote 7, where midway through one of the quotations there, he says, quote, we need to get to the point where no one would dream of accusing an evangelical paedo-baptist of holding to the false and destructive doctrine of baptismal regeneration, end quote. But then, footnote 8, the second quotation there, raise your hand if you knew that the Westminster Confession taught baptismal regeneration, end quote. Total contradiction, complete double talk, ambiguity, uh, the devil's in the details with Doug Wilson. Uh, and, and this is why people say, you know, he's a heretic. Also, he has a pattern of vouching for the orthodoxy of numerous federal vision heresies and heretics. He has this penchant for vouching for the orthodoxy of numerous federal vision heresies and heretics. So, for instance, Wilson on Rich Lusk's heretical denial of imputed righteousness. We dealt with this in lectures 6 and 7. And you can see footnote 9. Lusk says, quote, the law did not require perfect obedience, end quote. Interesting. Again, quote, 
God's righteousness is His own righteousness, not something imputed or infused. God's righteousness is simply His covenantal trustworthiness. Specifically, it is His saving activity on behalf of Israel, setting the world to rights in accord with the prophetic promises. Paul is not identifying the gospel with the doctrine of imputed righteousness. End quote. Again, Lusk. Quote, this justification requires no transfer or imputation of anything. It does not force us to redefine righteousness into something that can be shuffled around in heavenly accounting books. My in-Christness makes imputation redundant. Listen to this. I do not need the moral content of his life of righteousness transferred to me. End quote. That's heresy. That's heresy. But listen to Doug Wilson in his introductory essay in the volume where those comments are made by Lusk, in Lusk's article, Wilson gives the introductory presentation for the Federal Vision side of the debate in the Auburn Avenue Theology Pros and Cons book. Quote, in our view, all the positions represented in the current discussion, as well as some others not currently engaged, are part of the historic reformed world and are orthodox and Christian. We understand ourselves to be in the mid middle of the mainstream of reformed, sorry. We understand ourselves to be in the middle of the mainstream of historic reformed orthodoxy. For the particulars, we would refer the reader to the various papers, end quote. And included in those papers is Lusk's article with those statements. So he's saying Lusk's heresy is not just Christian, it's in the middle of the mainstream of historic Reformed orthodoxy. How about Wilson on Schlissel's view of covenant children? Schlissel, footnote 10, citing his opponent, Schlissel says, baptized children must be evangelized and must come to a personal faith in order to receive the salvation offered by God's covenant. Okay, And Schlissel's going to critique this. He says, this statement is repulsive to God's testimony that the children of His people truly and fully belong to Him. All baptized Christians are addressed in the same way they have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. End quote. So Wilson says, middle of the mainstream of historic Reformed orthodoxy, and Schlissel's saying the idea that our children need to be evangelized and come to personal faith is repulsive. Wilson says that's Orthodox, that's Reformed. Wilson on Schlissel's repudiation of justification by faith alone. We dealt with this in lectures 1 and 2. But you can see footnote 11. I'm not going to get too deeply into this, but the first quote, uh, Schlissel says this, quote, have Reformed folks gotten it wrong? Yes, to the extent that they followed Luther in an imaginary law-gospel antithesis. The law as God gave it is the gospel. And the gospel as announced by Paul is the law. It was Christ's teaching that obedience to the law was something very doable and that such obedience, which includes repentance and faith, does save, end quote. And that's from a Christian Renewal Magazine interview in 2003. Wilson was one of the people interviewed as well. He didn't stand up and reject that. In fact... He says this in the Federal Vision Dark and Light uh, or Light or Dark lecture in 2005 in Moscow, quote, so whenever I get together with Steve Schlissel or with Rich Lusk or with Steve Wilkins, all the different characters, we talk about it and we come to agreement in about five or ten minutes. But when we're turned loose, we emphasize different things according to our situations, our backgrounds, the ministry in front of us, and so on, end quote. So, Schlissel and his views, he's just one of the cast of characters. And within five minutes, he and Wilson are on the same page. That's troubling. Also, Wilson on James Jordan's denial of spiritual regeneration. Lectures 8 and 9 of our series. We dealt with that. Footnote 12. Jordan says, the thesis of this paper is that all who are in Christ are in exactly the same position as regards the grace or favor and gifts of God, with no distinction save that some continue in that position while others depart from it. 
those passages that are traditionally held to teach that apostates never really were in Christ all along have been misinterpreted. And there are in fact, listen, there are in fact no such passages in the Bible. Or to put it more bluntly, my thesis is that there is no such thing as regeneration in the sense in which Reformed theology since Dort has spoken of it. The Bible says nothing about a permanent change in the hearts of those elected to salvation. End quote. And Wilson commenting on this very paper by Jordan says, quote, Jim's a friend of mine. That seems to be the prerequisite nowadays for orthodoxy. Jim's a friend of mine. No problem with his orthodoxy. He's a good guy. His paper on regeneration is a good example of what I mean by the emphasis of federal vision dark, like an oatmeal stout dark beer. I'm not trying to indicate disagreement with federal vision oatmeal stout, but it's a difference of emphasis, end quote. Oh, just a difference of emphasis. Somebody denies regeneration. That's just a difference of emphasis. Wilson concerning Peter Lighthart's end of Protestant project, which speaks for itself by the name thereof. Uh, quote, this is Wilson. To take one example, Peter Lighthart's end of, Protestant end of Protestantism project is going someplace where I am simply uninterested in going. I am not talking about Peter's personal destination, which is the resurrection of the body and complete glory, a destination we gladly share. We don't need to hurl anathemas at one another over any of this, end quote. This is from the Federal Vision No Moss, a blog post from January of 2017, where he supposedly says he's backing away from the Federal Vision, but throughout the article, he continuously reaffirms his Federal Vision convictions. He just doesn't like the name because it's probably bad for business. It's a negative association. Uh, some of it, he says, he is troubling. He doesn't want to go where Peter Lightheart's going in terms of his movement. But he has no problem saying that someone who wants the end of Protestantism is definitely saved, right? And that's a huge problem. Because you look at the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is hurling anathemas at people that want to quote-unquote end Protestantism and want to undermine the biblical gospel of justification by faith alone. Uh, so, it, it, are we going to say someone definitely has a credible profession of faith if they start the end of Protestantism project? But apparently for Wilson, you know, as with James Jordan, he's a good guy. No problem with his orthodoxy. We just have a, a you know, minor peripheral disagreement. He wants to end Protestantism and I don't. Eh, you know, different strokes for different folks. Wilson on Ralph Smith's redefinition of the Trinity. We dealt with this in lectures 19 through 21. Uh, we can simply say that Smith's books on the Trinity were published by Canon Press. We don't need to say any more than that. Wilson on the Federal Vision as a whole. 21 lectures we've uh, set forth in this series. Quote, but in distinguishing myself from the Federal Vision, this is after he bailed from the Federal Vision in 2017, in distinguishing myself from the federal vision, I am accusing no one of heresy. I am simply saying that certain views are not the same kind of thing as what I am seeking to teach, end quote. Notice, he doesn't even say that he doesn't believe these things. He just says, well, I, I just won't teach these things. Uh, I am accusing no one of heresy. So denying imputation, that's not heresy. Saying that it's repulsive, to think that our children need to be converted, denying regeneration, redefining the Trinity, trying to end Protestantism. I am accusing no one of heresy, he says. At best, at best, this makes Wilson a barely orthodox accomplice to soul-murdering heresy. He won't affirm the things that these other people are saying. But he's promoting these people. He sells lectures and books and materials for many of these people on his website. He's published some of their books. At best, he's a barely orthodox, by the skin of his teeth, accomplice to soul-murdering heresy. And I would argue that his professed orthodoxy, when he makes all these distinctions to somehow save face and somehow articulate something halfway orthodox, when he does that, his professed orthodoxy makes him even more dangerous. He's the front man 
He's the innocent shell company of the theological mafia. He's the gateway drug. And so perhaps more than anything else, Doug Wilson is a crafty theological huckster. He's a shameless salesman preying on new Calvinists. And by saying this, I'm not denying that he's a heretic, nor am I affirming it. What I'm trying to say is, uh, if you are an accomplice to murder, you're a murderer. In that sense, Doug Wilson's a heretic. But if we were to simply say he's a heretic, we would actually help his cause if we say it without making a distinction, we would help his cause because people that hear that would go listen to these things and hear many of these orthodox quotations and they would say, well, you're lying. He's not a heretic. Uh, but the point is, what makes him so dangerous is that he's, a, he's the part of this operation that appears as an angel of light. And so you need to understand that. So he's not going to come out and say the kind of boldly heretical things the other guys are saying but that's by design. He's the front man. So he's, he's a, a heretic, not merely by association, but he's an accomplice to the murder of souls by these things that he's vouching for. Uh, and again, if, if we qualify it, then yes, he's a heretic. But don't expect him to be saying heretical things left and right. He's smart enough not to do that. So, so the, the best way, I think, to summarize him is he's a huckster. Uh, he's a salesman. And... You can see this in his deceptive marketing strategy. He says, quote, I was, am, and will remain a Westminster Puritan within, a Rennick River, within an Arenic River of historic Reformed Orthodoxy, end quote. Doug Wilson, he, he claims, is a Westminster Puritan. Okay? Doug Wilson rejects and denies numerous teachings of the Westminster Standards, even core teachings of the Westminster Standards, left and right. Uh, Doug Wilson is about as Puritan as Donald Trump's Christmas tree. He's not, in, he's not interested in piety. He, he's against historic reformed spirituality. He makes fun of it. He mocks it. He is not a Westminster Puritan, but he deceptively markets himself in that capacity. Listen to where he actually admits that he's marketing these things. This is in the Federal Vision Light or Dark, Dark or Light lecture from Rich Lusk, 2005. Wilson, if you're going to make a nice dark beer with bark still floating in it, one of the things you have to get over when you're marketing it, he's talking about the Federal Vision here. He's talking about marketing the Federal Vision. He says one of the things you have to get over when you're marketing it is that you have to not care that people don't like how it tastes at first. And Steve Schlissel is a good example of someone who doesn't care if you don't like how it tastes at first. He's a passionate man and a passionate Christian pastor. I love him dearly and think he's a great provocateur. I think we need people to say, if you don't like how it tastes, deal with it. So I don't mind the fact that there are people out there that are advocating or articulating a dark oatmeal stout, but I also think we need what I'm calling amber ale, is an interest in articulating and harmonizing what we're saying with what our Reformed predecessors, I'm talking about the last 100 years in America, they have some legitimate concerns and interests that they don't want to see obscured, and I think a number of times they have a legitimate point or a legitimate concern. And I think that some among us need to be careful that we hear that and articulate that. And that's what I'm calling Federal Vision Amber Ale. I'm not trying to indicate disagreement with Federal Vision Oatmeal Stout, but it's a different emphasis, a difference of emphasis. So whenever I get together with Steve Schlissel or with Rich Lusk or with Steve Wilkins, all the different characters... We talk about it and we come to agreement in about five or ten minutes, but when we're turned loose, we emphasize different things according to our situations, our backgrounds, the ministry in front of us, and so on, end quote. So he admits he's marketing Federal Vision. He's the front man. He's the good cop. He's the one who has serious concerns about reformed confessionalism and these kinds of things. Um, but it's all a part of a goal, a unified object of the Federal Vision Advocates to get you onto the dark beer of flagrant heresy. So 
This is very, very concerning, to say the least. Uh, it's a deceptive marketing strategy. Also, his chameleon-like media persona, you know, he's the prim and proper homeschool classical education guru, but now apparently uh, he, he's a hipster. You know, he, he's over 60 now, but he, he's trying to relate to these young, restless, reformed people and he's remade himself in recent years on the internet to be, uh, well, in the words of uh, the quote from the New York Times that he put on the front of his recent book, Rules for Reformers, quote, more like a lumberjack than a pastor even when he wears a suit, end quote. And they show him in this leather motorcycle jacket with John Calvin as a skeleton uh, on the back of it. Uh, he, he, he's shameless in his self-promotion. He, he wants to be whatever he needs to be to enhance his own influence. And you can see someone over 60 is this reformed hipster lumberjack or whatever. Uh, thirdly, his serpentine denials of gospel exclusivity. We remember Satan in the garden says, if you eat of this forbidden fruit, he says, you will not surely die. You will not surely die. Satan denies the judgment and wrath of God that would fall upon Adam and Eve for taking that fruit. Wilson does the same thing with soul-damning heresy. He says, oh, denial of imputation, redefinition of the Trinity, denial of the new birth, repudiation of all these doctrines. Well, you won't surely die. It's the middle of the mainstream of historic Reformed orthodoxy. You can still be saved. It's all good you will not surely die. But this is not the position of the New Testament. Nor is this the position of a true minister of the Gospel. Paul in Romans 10, we're bringing this to a close real soon. Romans 10, how does he view people who deny justification by faith alone and who refuse to submit to the imputation of the righteousness of God? Romans 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So he views those who deny justification by faith alone as in need of being evangelized and saved and as those who will not submit to God's righteousness and those who are outside of the kingdom. That's how Paul views people who deny justification by faith alone. We could go to 2 Corinthians 11, 13 and 14, uh, and some of the early verses in that chapter as well, where pre people teach another gospel, another Jesus, another Holy Spirit. And Paul says, this is of the devil. He's taking the simplicity of Christ and complicating it with ambiguity and double talk and deceiving you. And it's Satan and his ministers uh, who, who transform themselves, as it were, into an angel of light. This is dangerous. Galatians 1, verse uh, 6, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from Him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And we have said before, so now we say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For now do I persuade men or God or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. The fact that Wilson refuses to apply these anathemas to people that clearly deserve them is a sign that he is not a faithful servant of Christ. You add that to his ecclesiastical lone ranger self-ordination, and it's, it's difficult to regard him as a true minister in any sense because of this. Uh, Jesus says if you cause even the least of these uh, to stumble, it'd be better if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were cast into the sea. Every time Wilson vouches for heresy 
and people, and they're doing it in droves, people embrace that and they join the pipeline to Eastern Orthodoxy or to Roman Catholicism, which is a thing, and I know several people where that's the case. And uh, you know, where, where you see one roach, there's a thousand in the wall. There's a lot of these people that are buying into Doug Wilson's teaching on the road to soul-damning heresy in Rome and in Eastern Orthodoxy. Doug Wilson is on the hook for that. His ambiguity, his double talk, his vouching for heretics makes him on the hook for that. And if we were to have a scriptural epitaph of his ministry, it would come from Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who call false doctrine the middle of the mainstream of historic Reformed orthodoxy. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. There's an epitaph. Uh, another one, Romans 16, 17, and 18. Just before Paul says that the Lord will crush Satan under your feet shortly, we see the work of Satan. In verse 17, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Finally, 2 Peter 2, 1-3. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Notice the language there. Is Doug Wilson explicitly teaching damnable or destructive heresy? Not necessarily. Is he bringing it in? Is he marketing it? Is he helping it to come through the pipeline into the evangelical church? You be the judge, but I'm inclined to say he is bringing in damnable, destructive heresies who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. Now, we can't speak authoritatively concerning uh, Doug Wilson's spiritual condition, but we would urge him to repent and reconsider and change his mind concerning his whole outlook, his whole ministry, and proclaim the true gospel under the oversight of a true faithful confessional branch of the visible church. Let's pray. Gracious God, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom Paul says, I am the chief, and we would agree with ourselves as well. We pray that You would bring to repentance those who have called evil good and good evil, those who have put light for darkness and darkness for light, sweet for bitter and bitter for sweet, that You would bring clarity to the witness of Your church, that all such teachers would be rejected, and we pray brought to repentance and restoration. By your almighty sovereign grace, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.